Welcome to Tantra Talks. This podcast is brought to you by Tantra Labs and hosted by our CTO, Russell LaCour. Please note, all opinions expressed by Russell or our guests on this podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Tantra Labs, Inc. You should not treat any opinions expressed by Russell or our guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of their opinions. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only. Previously only open to accredited investors, Tantra Labs will soon be open to the public, offering 12% interest on your Bitcoin or Ethereum. That's higher than our competitors and much higher than your bank. To learn more or to sign up for our beta waitlist, visit tantralabs.io. All right, now back to the show. Hey guys, thanks for joining me today. Back for another episode of Tantra Talks. Today I'm joined by Nick Batia, who just came out with his new book, Layered Money. I'm sure you've heard him on our podcast before. Nick is a established and well-known prominent figure in the Bitcoin space talking about how Bitcoin can become staple point on the future of finance and how one day governments and banks alike will actually put Bitcoin on their balance sheet here to spread some knowledge and talk to me today about that future and the puzzle pieces that are going to fall into place to make it happen. Nick Batia. What up, Russ? Good to be back, man. Thank you, brother. I'm so glad that you came out of your cave to join me today to finish writing your book and spreading the Bitcoin gospel to the world. Yeah, man, I have been in a cave, it seems like, for several months. When I decided that I was all in on this book, Layered Money, I disappeared and you know yep. was writing day and night for, for many, many months. And uh, yes, once I finally put the pre-order link up on Twitter, then I, I emerged from my cave. And so, and let's talk about your book. So the title is Layered Money and you go into, and I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but you, you go into how the banking system evolved over time, how we went from you know, hard currency like gold and silver to then paper to then a central bank version of paper. And now the evolution being a digital version of those, like it's basically we're coming full circle to where now we have a digital version of a hard asset rather than our physical version. And that solves a lot of the issues that were inherently there in the original physical version of money, gold and silver. Would you say that's a good summary of it? Or can you give us you know, your God tier knowledge version of it? <laughs> no, it is a good uh, way to describe it. And layered money is basically uh, this idea that money is either a counterparty free asset, or it's a liability of yeah. something or somebody. And in our system today, essentially all forms of money except gold and bitcoin are liabilities of a financial institution well and that's that's a great way to describe it and one of the things you said in in your book and again i'm going to try not to do any spoilers but there were a a lot of moments that i got the chills when i was reading it because you have a, a way of taking it to a deeper level and so one of the things that you said is the 
step where we went from gold to a liability. So we went from you know gold and silver to a note that it was basically an IOU. You talk about how this represented the human tendency for us to keep tabs on each other. And I thought that that was a very unique and novel idea because it's, you're in essence holding something over someone else's head. You're literally like making someone else your slave on a certain level saying like, you owe me something or I owe you something. So the paper note became powerful. Yeah. You know, paper and it, it wasn't even like you said, it's the, it's this tendency to keep tabs with each other. So originally it didn't even need paper. People just remembered. Yeah. And then once we started growing the global economy, then you need other ways to keep promises mm-hmm. and keep them organized. And so that's how paper money came into the fold. But even before paper, as things were starting to get organized, this idea of keeping tabs with each other, it was done through a banking network, mm-hmm. this class of merchants called merchant bankers. Well, and I think once it evolved from there, you, you know, you talk about the Bank of Amsterdam and I another like chill moment for me was because I a lot of people, I think, in the Bitcoin space are more conspiracy theorists at, at heart. I think a lot of us look at, you know, governments and systems as uh, very much here to try and control us. And one of the things you said was the monetary in- innovation set forth by central banks served only to advance their own government's agenda. And that's so powerful because it's so true. Like they, in the book, you go into how the government of Amsterdam made it illegal basically for the merchants to issue notes because they wanted people to go straight to the government and for them to h- harness all the power. And so you look at, all the innovations that they had to set forth were for them to be more powerful was for them to centralize that power. And when we look at it today, that's very much the truth. Like when we vote on something, we don't vote on whether they're going to increase or decrease inflation. That's, that's what they get to decide. Like we actually have zero say in it when we're the ones directly affected by it. And I really believe like, and I'm sure you feel the same way, that is the movement that we're in of why Bitcoin is so important and so powerful is it's actually money that you're voting on. It's not outside of your control. Yeah. And this is why I had to set up the layers of money to explain how the government came in, because you have to understand that what they monopolized was the second layer of money. You can't monopolize something that is a counterparty free asset like gold, but you right. can monopolize the issuance of instruments that promise to pay gold within your jurisdiction. Yep. And that's what the Bank of Amsterdam did. Did They came in and they banned the issuance of second layer money or promises to pay gold and silver coin. And they said, you can only use our promises within this within this economy and so that's why you have to set up this layered model where we can see that what exactly where exactly in the monetary system did they come in and control they are in in the context of layered money and my framework 
they are the actor between the first and the second layer of money and they remove all other actors. And I want to, I want to drop one more thing and then I want to, I want to move to the end of the book and I want to talk about the future because I don't want to spoil the whole book for people. But I, I loved one other thing that you said because it was, it's, there's these little things that you kind of don't realize the secondary effects and the innovations that happened with paper money and like why it happened is really such a beautiful thing watching the evolution of transactions and markets. And it was basically that when you have all these merchants and they're settling everything in gold and silver, they had a huge problem with pirates. And so when they started issuing these notes and having, you know, paper money instead, it solved a lot of the problems with pirates, which is such like a secondary effect. But also I I bet at the time it was huge for them because they they didn't have to worry about losing, you know, millions of dollars worth of gold or silver in a shipping accident. It's just paper. And and dude, I fell down the shipwreck pirate rabbit hole <laughs> while researching this book. No lie. I fell down the shipwreck rabbit hole because I wanted to illustrate this idea, exactly what you're talking about. This idea that what happened with these promises, this network of merchant bankers actually directly contributed to the safety of money transfer around the world. And the safety of money transfer was jeopardized or was in jeopardy during that era because of pirates, because of shipwrecks, because of, bad weather in the Mediterranean. I mean, all these types of things. And so I actually didn't end up putting in any of the research that I did. (laughs) But that's, you know, that's, I guess that's definitely the fun of writing a book. You know, how many things you have to leave out uh, to tell the story properly. But, but yeah, I mean, I did have to, because one of my friends who was helping me, you know, kind of think through some of the Uh, illustrations and the analogies, he was like, you have to point out that an entire industry of shipwreck hunting exists today because of the durability of the gold and silver money itself. And to show that, you know, there was this whole period of time where this was one of the, you know, biggest risks that existed in the world in the context of, you know, how we think of like hot wallet risk today or, yeah. you know, with Tantra, you guys are thinking about security. You guys are thinking about, you know, using the blockchain and you guys are thinking about your hot wallets. And when you transact between your wallets and your exchanges wallets, yep. uh, you know, all those types. Of, well, back then it was like, don't wreck, wreck the shit. <laughs> and, and so, yeah. and, and then it really, I mean, and then if you want to tie it full circle, it's, don't send it on a ship. Yep. Don't don't send it at all. Let's yep. use our network and let's move the money through balance sheets and through messengers before we even got to paper. Well, and you talk about, and I think the one of the biggest innovations there, like what it did, again, another secondary effect, but really I think one of the, the biggest things that we can point to today with what's happening with Bitcoin, with finance in general is like, as humans, we're, we're like infinitely greedy. Like we just forever and ever just want to make things faster, better, have more. And so coins and gold were slow 
it it wasn't fast enough for us. Like we needed faster, easier money. And so at the time, the technology was okay, we can do it with paper. Today, the technology is, oh, we can do it with the internet and we can do it instantaneously. And so I think, and you go into this a lot, and I, I really think it's the whole argument of layered money in general and this idea that the financial system is evolving and we're actually alive to watch it evolve. It's that the old system, like the system that we currently exist on, the credit-based US dollar, uh, pegged Federal Reserve is an archaic system. It actually is over, you know, what, 400 years old if you go back to the Bank of Amsterdam. So isn't it time we upgrade that system? And, and I very much agree with the philosophy that that is exactly what is happening right now with the cryptocurrency ecosystem. And, and what, you're, what you're describing is entirely what Satoshi Nakamoto was dedicated to and what his predecessors, Hal Finney, Wei Dai, were dedicated to, Adam Back, they were trying to figure out a way to replace the obsolete, archaic technology that we rely on for money. Yeah. And it, it, it is completely archaic because of the monopoly structure between the first and second layer of money and even the actor getting to decide what the first layer of money is, which is in our system, government debt. Yep. And so, you know, we have to, we have to understand that that was the, in it, that was the original goal of the technology. It was to replace the rails and what, what you build on top of it is, still going to be subject to human innovation. And I use the Hal Finney, the very famous Hal Finney quote about a second layer, a second layer of transactions on top of Bitcoin and how Bitcoin will be the slow moving, how high powered money, mm -hmm. because they knew, they knew what they were doing, that you can't put a whole financial system on one, you know, chain of blocks. You have to, have a value layer, then you can have a transaction layer yeah. and, and so on and so forth, because that's the way the current traditional financial system is set up. When I send you Venmo, you know, that's like on the fourth or fifth layer of money, depending on how you want to slice it. It feels instant and, and great, but we know it's not instant. Uh, it's instant only in a mirage yeah. on the fourth layer of money. Yep. But in reality, that's not how it works. We do know how instant, relatively speaking, Bitcoin is on the first layer. It occurs when a block uh, is confirmed, and that can happen every few minutes, every 10 minutes on average. So that clarity, that transparency, and of course, the decentralization and that anybody can run a node, yeah. that, is, that is such an advance. And so, yes, of course... That's what they were trying to do. And by they, I'm talking about Satoshi and associated digital cash. Pioneers. You know, researchers and pioneers, exactly. Of the 90s and up to Satoshi Nakamoto in 2008, 2009. So let's, let's talk about this because like we said earlier, uh, we haven't really gotten 
deep into this, especially recorded for 12 months. And a lot has happened in the last 12 months. And I would love to hear your take on it. I know, I think the last time we talked was right after March 12th when we had that huge liquidity crisis, or it was right before. Since then, you know, we've seen the government basically add trillions of dollars to the balance sheet. They're actually buying public equities now. We're about to print another $1.9 trillion. And I would love to hear your take on it. I, because ultimately, I think this is everything that Satoshi was saying in the white paper that we can't trust them to not do this and they're going to do it again. And we're basically going to see absolutely none of it. Yeah. And here's here's the way that I you know, have set up my book and I've set up my answers to this question. You know, when people ask me, like, is it because of all the money printing? Is it because of all the bailouts? that we have to own Bitcoin. Mm. And you can make that direct argument. Sure, you can make that. And of course, understanding fiscal and monetary profligacy over, you know, post 2009 in my own global macroeconomic research was a big part of me trying to understand the history of gold and our monetary system. And of course, leading to the to the discovery of Bitcoin. But with that being said, you're a trader, Russ, I'm a trader. Okay. Price is truth. Yep. <laughs> and when the price of Bitcoin is telling you that there is a demand for a non-government, non-central bank currency that is sustained over multiple quote unquote bubbles and bursts. Yep coming back stronger each consecutive time and now approaching three quarters of a trillion dollar market capitalization. Mm -hmm. The price is telling you that a new money has been born. It is demanded beyond a shadow of a doubt. And the demand comes from a very wide range of Buyers, yep. people, companies, countries, families, wealth managers, fiduciaries, you name it. Western, Western world, Eastern world. Elon Musk's. The billionaires, the richest people in the world, mm -hmm. and the people with the least access to financial services on the planet. Or, and, and the people that are the most restricted restricted from denominating their earnings in a currency that they have confidence in. Yep. And so, I mean, and this is also part of the reason I wrote the book and started it, you know, when, you know, I started it in the pandemic when it was going to be, I just knew this was going to be obvious to everybody by the end of this year that mm -hmm. Bitcoin is, its time is now. This is its destiny to be yep. a neutral currency in a fragmented, crazy world, yep. a crazy world that's, you know, on the brink of financial collapse every, you know, every single year, it seems like from yeah. some black swan event. That well, we GameStop almost just took out the whole market. Right. I mean, it just <laughs> never, it's like there's such, there's such instability in the system that Bitcoin yep. is going to be inevitable. So I wrote the book. 
we know, you know, with the express purpose of Bitcoin has already won. Yeah. Do you really? So let's go back to answer your question. Do we really need to go into the money printing and the borrowing from the tri- the government to pay all the bailouts and then to pay universal basic income? Or can we just observe that those things are happening and correlated with over a long term an increase in Bitcoin market value? And I choose to do the latter because like if you try to find inflation in the system, the statistics will tell you that it's not there. Then you want to look and cherry pick your own inflation statistics and say that the healthcare costs are skyrocketing and education costs and asset prices and real estate are all going up. Okay, that's fine. But guess what? Bitcoin is also going up. So if you believe that the correlation of inflated asset prices, inflated education prices is correlated to, to Bitcoin, then if that's your investment thesis and you want to hedge away that, you should be long Bitcoin. But for me, the price is the truth. And you look at what the price of Bitcoin is telling us. It's telling us that something truly, truly groundbreaking and once in a millennium has happened. Yep. And all you really have to do is understand exponential or logarithmic growth and look at a 12-year chart. And the picture tells uh, a trillion words or hopefully 10 trillion words. <laughs> um, the picture has, is telling a trillion words now. And, and really, I mean, you just have to look at the price. Yep. I think that's a beautiful way to say it. And, I- and Russ, I'll also say too, that the reason I did that too, is I didn't want to write this book as, as like an anti-government, anti-central bank book. Oh, totally. Let's just show them what the system is. Show them what the system is. Show them how they have to, they have been forced to put band-aids on the entire thing. Yep. And the band-aids are in the form of trillions of, whether you want to call it wholesale money, retail money, electronic monetary stimulus money, reserves, yep. whatever you want to call it. They've done it. It's there. And it probably, most likely, is evidencing itself in the price of other things Bitcoin being one of them. Well, that's a beautiful way to put it. I'm glad you said that because I actually almost said this earlier when when I basically was quoting your book on how monetary innovations br- brought about by the central bank were basically to advance the government agenda. That see when you look at it from like the conspiracy theory land, it's a very like dark and ominous, you know, the Illuminati's out to get us thing but when you look at it from the point of view of the government they're just trying to do what's best for their people and for themselves and so it inherently it's not an evil thing it's like if you were the the manager of the central bank at the time having a bunch of money changers that are all offering a different kind of paper that has a different saying on it is a pain in the ass versus centralizing and standardizing the system and the issue is is not that they did that and that they centralized monetary policy. The issue is that they did it 400 years ago on stone tablets and parchment paper. And today we can instantaneously transact over the internet. I think that's the real issue here that's being solved where the old system 
solved the problem then, and it did a lot of good for the world and helped us innovate financially and move forward. But now it's time to evolve because that system is broken. That's and that's exactly how to phrase it here. It's you know they were just doing what they thought was best, but also keep in mind you don't it it doesn't mean you have to overlook that they were trying to look out for themselves, and we can totally. see that. In the, in the example of the Dutch East India Company, yep. that they were actually directly involved in setting up the Bank of Amsterdam so that they could borrow money issued by the Bank of Amsterdam <laughs> that wasn't reserved with gold for their exploits in Indonesia and yep. the rest of Asia. And so they and uh, so it was in their best interest to form this bank, get rid of the problem of coin multiplicity, as you described, mm -hmm. and, but also borrow and issue money to themselves that they could create out of thin air because the demand for the Bank of Amsterdam deposit was quite sufficient to, to make that, to give them that power to yep. issue money to themselves. And so they did it. And then the Bank of England said, we want to do that. And they did it. And then, yep. and then here we are. And, you know, I call that in the book privileged lending. Yep. And it is, it's such an interesting thing because you basically, at the end of the day, you have to go to human psychology, right? Like if you had a button where you could just print an infinite amount of money and you could do whatever you want and really you didn't see the detriment to society that you were causing and you only saw like how you're expanding your borders or you're helping people, whatever, you know, sunglasses these people put on to see what they want to see you understand why it continued to happen to the point where it's happened today, where the Federal Reserve has less than you know one percent of gold on its balance sheet and is now buying public fucking equities. Like we definitely went from zero to a hundred over the last four hundred years, from totally backed currency to uh, literally good faith in the in the government. And the Fed has also removed this idea that anything of size can ever fail. And well, so exactly. that, then that brings in an entire, you know, cultural flaw yep. with our monetary system. And that's also something that I wanted to stay away from, because when you start to get in the cultural flaws of central banking, you bring about a lot of criticism. Well, I'm not actually trying to fault our culture of uh, blame our culture on central banking. And so mm -hmm. that's why you have to leave stuff like that out to reach a wider audience because it's not really relevant. What's relevant is this hierarchy of monetary instruments and where you want to be in that hierarchy with your wealth. You make yep. the call. Here's the model. You decide. You want all your money on the third layer? That's fine. Yep. If you want all your money on the first layer, what are your options? They're gold, Bitcoin, and U.S. Treasuries, the triumvirate of liquidity, something that might sound familiar to you. Yep. <laughs> and, and so those are your options on the first layer. And you get to decide. If you don't want first layer money, that's on you. That, that's on you now. So I, I want to get your take on this because this is actually something that's been coming up in my mindscape a lot. It's, it's this idea of like, okay, let's pin the, the U.S. government versus the Chinese government and basically say, you know, the U.S. won the um, world reserve currency status and now it, it's weak. 
And so if you're China and you want the world reserve to be on your currency because you believe that that gives you more power, but how do you push that? Okay, you could push it through military strength and basically try and dominate the world. You could push it through political strength and basically attack the dollar and say, you know, it's it's faltering or they're printing, whatever it is, it's being manipulated. I don't think China has a strong argument there. Or you could push forward a neutral currency. And so when I looked at like this idea of, you know, the United Nations and more on a global macro scale, like how does the world unpeg themselves from this current system? That's when you really see, oh shit, Bitcoin is the answer because it doesn't benefit any one particular party. Like there isn't one government that walks away the king if you choose this option. And so in that thought experiment, I was very much trying to understand like, is there a government in the world that would, you know, push that forward or kind of make that happen? Yeah, it's 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 gonna be really fascinating to watch it play out. So yeah. there are there are a couple things that you bring up. Let's hit them one at a time. Bitcoin is the beneficiary because no one can no one can control it. No one can expressly benefit fr- from it. Yep. Re- more relative to their peers by doing anything. Basically, you can benefit from it, but your neighbor can by owning it too. So yep. there's nothing you can do to out benefit your neighbor. So that is there. And then, I mean, really, we want to talk about China. And I'm super ex- excited for us to hear the feedback from China. The first two translations, it looks like, of layered money are going to be simple Chinese and complex Chinese, Amazing. which I'm starting to learn are completely different written languages, but the same spoken language. And anyway, both translations are coming out. So we're going to get some Chinese feedback on this Amazing. book. Um, super, super pumped about it. So the way that I see this China digital currency, they call it DCEP, their digital renminbi, the way I see it playing out is that they're going to use this currency for influence, for geopolitical influence over the world. Yep. How are they going to do it? They are going to force their international trading partners to pay for their country's own goods and services in digital renminbi. Mm-hmm. So you're going, to have, you're going to have to buy it and then use it. Just like, just like, um, the world has to buy dollars to buy oil. Yep. So China's going to replicate that. They're going to drive people into using the digital renminbi. But does that mean the digital renminbi is going to be the final settlement tool of those countries in which they keep their reserves in it and then they use those reserves to purchase Chinese denominated fixed income instruments and it drives the global reserve currency toward renminbi? I think absolutely not. That is that is maybe part of the goal of China, but that is not going to unfold in the context of digital assets, Bitcoin, dollars, the European Central Bank going forward right. with the digital currency. It's There's other not, options. Like it's why? just not going to happen. Right? Yeah. But, but 
they will they will use it it will increase in its importance in the global economy and it will achieve this let's call it it'll get to the level of where the euro is in global importance yep one day soon maybe in a decade maybe in half a decade well maybe. to tie it into like what people are seeing now it's the same idea as like maybe you have USDC as a stable coin but you need USDT to purchase whatever shit coin you want to buy so the price discrepancy between them grows like sometimes USDC is 99 cents and USDT is a dollar and we're very much going to see those kinds of marketplaces exist for world currencies and i'm actually surprised we haven't already seen like a digitized yuan on uniswap in high volume where these kind of chinese cryptocurrencies come out and your the only way to buy it is through this pair that's why i say it's going to be exciting to watch it unfold cuz it it literally is the wild west and yep and then with jurisdictional arbitrage you're going to have instruments digital instruments pop up uh, yep. all over the world that are not you're not really able to stop them immediately and you know they'll grow in importance and then they'll try to get you know governments will try to ban them like china will try to ban certain and also by the way china has in their ruling from a couple months ago stated that yuan stable coins are illegal ooh Banks right. cannot issue a digital renminbi that is a promise to pay renminbi. Well, that explains why I haven't seen that pair It's yet. illegal now in China. Yeah, I found that article in the South China Morning Post a couple months ago, and I, I tweeted it out. So that was important. And that actually sets up part of the, the more minutia of the argument that China is going for a retail central bank digital currency, mm-hmm. whereas the United States and the Fed might go wholesale for their central bank digital currency to start much before they ever try to issue digital fed coins to people right. via you know banking wallets and those types of applications and so that's a little teaser about kind of some of the things that i discuss toward the end of the book when we're thinking about the future of digital currencies and money it's like what are central bank digital currencies going to look like? Are they going to be retail facing? Are they only going to be a tool for the banking system? And how will they interact with Bitcoin? And how will they interact with their own domestic banking systems? Because the Fed doesn't want to put JP Morgan and Bank of America out of business. Right. Uh, they definitely don't want to do that, especially because the Fed is the central bank for the banking system themselves. It's their mm-hmm. bank. It's uh, their currency. A lot of interesting there's going to be a lot of things to watch and i don't try to expressly predict everything that's going to happen but you know it's more show what the next 3 years really might look like as we see cbdc stable coins and bitcoin start to interact with each other every day well i got to say nick you just you just walked into a trap cuz you said you don't want to predict what the next few years want to, are going to look like but I would like to know what your Bitcoin price prediction is by the end of this year, but also by the end of the decade. By the end of this year, I think that Bitcoin will have gone above, well above $100,000. Okay, I'll cheer and, for that one. And my current expectation for the top of this current cycle, which I feel will end 
sometime over the next 12 to 18 months and we'll you know have the hype beyond uh 10 times beyond what happened in 2017 mm-hmm. that that number is somewhere in the 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 two to three hundred thousand dollar handle that's like our blowout top that's the blowout top and followed by what will probably be another 80 percent total wipeout back down really to you think we're gonna to have another top. big bear market yeah i do i think that if you look at the chart and you know how I think about charts, yeah. the price will tell you everything. And, and the chart is telling me that the price is going to run up and crash in a very similar way that it did in 2017 and that it did in 2013. So, um, so that tells me that you believe that like central bank policy and adding Bitcoin to balance sheets isn't something that's happening in the next 12 to 18 months. It's it's something happening in the next five to 10 years, possibly. Oh, they might even add at the top at the end of this year. <laughs> uh, that's probably your sell signal, actually. That's probably your sell signal when the first central bank announces their position, because that means they've been buying it for six to 12 months. Uh, and uh, you know, part of the reason that the price ran up itself, then they announce it at the top. And, you know, and then that's when they dump it on retail and, you know, that kind of thing. So I think that that type of boom and bust cycle will continue. And I, and it's also why it makes it extremely difficult to own Bitcoin unless you're aware of these Mm -hmm. dynamics, the cyclicality and its importance as a once in a millennium innovation so that you don't get shaken out of your position without you know, holding it for a minimum of five years. Because yeah. if you're not holding your Bitcoin for five years, you're not thinking through, you're not thinking through the investment thesis. And that doesn't mean people can't make money. You know, Tantra's making money, trading along the way. Mm-hmm. You know, arbitrage opportunities are the lifeblood of our financial system. And so yep. people have to close the arbitrage. Go get it. You know, you guys see an arbitrage, that's what your art is. And I talk about that. There's an art called arbitrage. Those who want to go get it, they go yeah. get it. Well, we're yeah. a service provider. We're like we're That's literally right. providing liquidity and you know balance to the market. That's no, there's no doubt about it. But to the you know to the retail general you know person, and even to a country, you know, are you getting involved in this for the right reasons, or right. are you trying to make money? And if you are trying to make money really quickly, then your emotions will you know definitely get the better of you yeah. and you'll end up getting, you're going to get shaken out. Well, and it's a beautiful way to put it. I do the same thing. Like when people talk to me about buying Bitcoin, I just say, you know, I think 10 years from now, Bitcoin's going to be worth at least a half a million dollars. And so I can buy it for, you know, 36,000 right now. That's a pretty good deal. Like that's when people say, should I buy now? That's literally the only thing I say to them. That's right. And that's the right way to think about it. And so that your next question was, where is it in a decade? Come on, um, give me, give me a big juicy seven digit number. I can't go seven, but I'm going to say that it will surpass gold, which is right now at a 10 trillion, which would put yep. Bitcoin at 500 K. Yep. So I would say that North of gold. Yes, uh, I agree. North of gold within the next 10 years is my you know, full expectation. You know, my favorite thing about that, because I 100% agree with that, believe that, willing to bet a lot of money on it, and I'm very much betting my my life on it. 
with inflation, gold's market cap will also expand over the next 10 years. It will. And that's why I use gold as a benchmark and as a reference point, because mm-hmm. that is that is the obsolescence of gold. When the price tells you that Bitcoin is worth more, yep. um, that's the demand of the world showing you that one is favored over the other. Yep. And that is the underpinning thesis of, you know, my investment case for Bitcoin it is the underpinning case of the book layered money that gold was the best money for a long time and bitcoin is going to be the best money for a long time because it resembles a lot of the things that gold had but in this very new digital way that makes gold you know frankly obsolete and yeah. i don't think gold disappears tomorrow or even over the next decade as bitcoin surpasses it it will evolve in its uh, role and it will still be value, I would argue, for centuries to come, because you can't just unwind thousands of years of anthropology. And who am I to, <laughs> and who am I to proclaim that gold is over? I think that that's well, no, just... It, you know, I think to put what you're saying in another way, because it, it totally makes sense to me, it's the central bank policy actually proved that gold as a store of value is obsolete. The fact that they were able to move off of gold and nobody batted an eye and the world kept going shows you that gold as a store of value, silver as a store of value is very much a human psychological issue more than it is an actual like value proposition. And that's what Bitcoin is also showing you. It's that like in human psychology, we can all band together and agree that literally fucking made up bullshit that we've put out into the ether on the world wide web that is it's very much not real like you cannot touch these things it is very much a number on a screen but human psychology can band together and we can get on the same like conscious wavelength and say but because we all agree that this is worth something it's worth something and because of that we can now transact and share value and send and transfer value through this medium the same way that we did you know 500 600 years ago before we moved off of it completely and began to transact on paper and now we can also do them all together at the same time so I'm in total agreement with everything that you wrote in your book. I absolutely loved it. I, it's funny, as I was reading it, I was getting like chills and having like nerd orgasms because of <laughs> kind of like the, the history facts that you were dropping. Like the pirate thing was really big for me. So when you said like you did all that pirate research afterwards, I was I totally could feel myself going down the same rabbit hole. So Dude, I the, love pirate, the pirate stuff was awesome. The shipwreck like uh, detour that I took, uh, <laughs> no pun intended. That was like that was like a crazy detour. But I I myself got chills once. It was like in the seventh or eighth draft, and I was I was really you know feeling like this book was ready to present, and I closed chapter seven, my Bitcoin chapter, with the Hal Finney quote. Mm. And I basically said that this book, I mean, Hal Finney, what he said was custom written for this book Mm. and that his words echo in eternity. And when I, cause you know, I love gladiator and I heard Russell Crowe in my ears and I wrote that (laughs) line and I got chills because I knew 
my goal was to insert Bitcoin into the monetary record officially from like, let's do it officially. Let's not, let's not beat around the bush anymore. Bitcoin is a part of monetary history. Yep. Like without a doubt, this book attempts to do that. And with that sentence, it was like, I had arrived at the thesis and it was like almost the punchline of the book. Hey guys, Savannah here. I just wanted to interrupt the pod quickly to actually read off the quote that Nick is talking about in his book. So this is what Hal Finney said. Actually, there's a very good reason for Bitcoin-backed banks to exist, issuing their own digital cash currency redeemable for Bitcoins. Bitcoin itself cannot scale to have every single financial transaction in the world be broadcast to everyone and included in the blockchain. There needs to be a secondary level of payment systems which is lighter weight and more efficient. Likewise, the time needed for Bitcoin transactions to finalize will be impractical for medium to large value purchases. Bitcoin-backed banks will solve these problems. They can work like banks did before nationalization of currency. Different banks can have different policies, some more aggressive, some more conservative. Some would be fractional reserve, while others may be 100% Bitcoin-backed. Interest rates may vary. Cash from some banks may trade at a discount to that from others. I believe this will be the ultimate fate of Bitcoin, to be the high-powered money that serves as a reserve currency for banks that issue their own digital cash. Okay, now back to the show. And I knew that, you know, even though I was writing this for pre-coiners and you know, people to give their friends and family to understand Bitcoin for the first time, that the, the true Bitcoiners out there would feel an emotional connection with this book. Mm, I very much did. And I, I always say, like, I don't think I could get more bullish, but your book definitely made me more bullish. So thank you. Did you market buy? That's the key. Did you market buy Bitcoin while reading Layered Money? Because there have been several, <laughs> several people have reported to me now. I market bought Bitcoin while reading your book. Yes, I added more leverage to my position. I did. Ah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for coming on today. Is there anything you wanted to say before we hop off? Any? I know everybody can follow you on Twitter. Please buy Nick's book, Layered Money. Share it with your friends and family because it is absolutely, I think that you know Nick talks about how Bitcoin will become uh, part of monetary history. And I think that when they're going through that class. This is going to be one of the recommended reads a hundred years from now on how Nick Batia predicted the future. Thanks Russ. I really appreciate it, man. You guys can find the book, Amazon worldwide and other retailers, Layered Money, just Google Layered Money and I'm sure you'll find it. You can find me at layeredmoney.com and links to the book, where to purchase it there. I'm on Twitter at time value of BTC. Uh, print and ebook versions are available. Audiobook is coming on Audible. It will be out soon. There are so much, so many people demanding the audiobook. So we'll have it to you guys soon. Foreign translations, a bunch of them coming this year. So uh, really excited for it. And thanks, dude. And I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you, brother. Thanks so much for stopping by and helping me solidify my resolve in uh, Million Dollar Bitcoin. All right, Russ. Take care, man. You too, brother. Thank you. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing us with your friends. Previously only open to accredited investors, Tantra Labs will soon be open to the public, offering 12% interest on your Bitcoin or Ethereum. That's higher than our competitors and much higher than your bank. 
To learn more or to sign up for our beta waitlist, visit tantralabs.io. Thanks for listening.